Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Well, welcome here this morning. The most important thing that you need to know this morning before anything else is that today is Donut Sunday. So no matter how the next 40 minutes or whatever go, that's the light at the end of your tunnel. So you can look forward to that. So uh, at FBC here, we're starting this series through Titus. As you can see, some of you already knew that was coming up. And this is what we call a church-wide series. A lot of you know what that means, but basically... Uh, are small groups that meet during the week, and on Sunday mornings, we're doing the same study. So we're working through Titus. Uh, if you're in a small group, you'll have started this past week, and it's a guy named Chip Ingram who's going to be talking to you. Uh, he's a really smart guy, and uh, so hopefully you're already in a small group. If you're not in a small group, I mean, there's so many reasons to join one, but especially getting the most out of these church-wide studies it is like such a great reason to join one. So if you're not in one, feel free after the service, go to the info center, you can sign up there. You can do it during the like. You can leave while I'm talking and go do that if you want. Like it is, I, I I think such an important decision you can make. Go on our website on your phone right now while I'm talking, or on the church app and uh, sign up. <clears throat> We've got lots of groups. We just started something called Small Group Startup, which is like kind of a free trial run of a small group. You can try it out on Tuesday nights. So if you're not in a group, I'd encourage you to check one out, and you'll get even more out of this. So if you've read much of Scripture, you'll maybe have started to realize that there are different genres throughout the Bible. It's not just, you know, one kind of genre straight through, but there's actually quite a bit of diversity. In the New Testament, one of the most common types of writing is what's called a letter, or kind of more formally, an epistle. And so these are letters that someone, usually a guy named Paul, writes to a church or to some people to continue encouraging them and teaching them in their faith, figuring out, you know, how they can keep moving forward in this relationship with Jesus, how they can keep learning and kind of growing in that regard. And so what we have in Titus is we have one of these epistles, and more specifically, it's a subgenre called a pastoral epistle. So Paul not only was kind of a pastor, this writer, but he trained young pastors to be pastors and leaders in the church. And there are three pastoral epistles in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy, both written to Timothy, and then this one written to a dude named Titus, who's a young pastor that Paul trained. He's kind of like Paul's disciple or mentor. He's like an intern that Paul kind of raised up, and now he's launching him to be a pastor. And so that's what this letter is. We're going to work through it over the next six weeks. It's only three chapters. It's kind of a short letter, but even that with six weeks, I feel like we're going to be moving pretty quickly. This morning, we're looking at chapter one, verses one through nine, and there's a lot going on there. But when I approach a passage, and I know that I've got X number of minutes on a Sunday morning, uh, that there's only so much I can talk about. So we're going to touch on all of it, look at a bit of all of it. Um, But where I really want to land this morning, I'm going to give you a spoiler kind of right out of the gates here. I'm going to let you know where we're landing at the end of this thing, is the main thing I want to focus on is the topic of leadership this morning. I want to talk about what it looks like to be an effective and a healthy leader. This is a really fitting timing for 
talking about leadership, because as most of you know, or I'm assuming most of you know, that tomorrow we get to go out and uh, exercise our democratic right to vote for those who will lead our nation, for our prime minister and all our government, and so that's something we get to do tomorrow. And as I've been thinking about that in context of what Paul's writing here, I've really realized that we have a lot of expectations that we place on our leaders. I mean, if you've ever talked politics with someone, you know that we have a lot of expectations for those who lead our government. We have opinions on what they should do, on what they shouldn't do, what they should say, what they shouldn't say, how they should be concerned about our needs, what's going on in our daily life. And we do that not only for politicians, we do that for our bosses. If you work somewhere, you have expectations that you place on your manager, your supervisor, the business owner. If you're if you have parents, you have expectations on them as leaders of you in that way. Maybe in your marriage, you have expectations. And that's, that's normal. I mean, we should have some degree of expectation, I believe, on those who lead us. But what I want to do this morning is I want us to take our eyes off of just focusing on the expectations we place on those who lead us and look back at ourselves and ask ourselves, what expectations do I place on myself as a leader? Maybe you're sitting here this morning, good chance you're sitting here this morning saying, well, Ryan, I'm not really a leader, so I don't know how this applies to me. You know, I don't, I'm not like a business owner, I'm not a manager, I don't work at the church, I don't, you know, I, you know I'm, just, I'm just a person. And my basic premise this morning is I want to argue this morning that every single person in this room is a born leader. That every single person in this room, to varying degrees and in varying capacities and in different ways, was given the potential to lead. And not only the potential, but I would argue that every single person in this room is leading someone, something, somewhere. You are leading someone, you're leading something, and you're leading somewhere. And you might not be convinced yet, but I want to spend this morning encouraging you and arguing that you do have capabilities and potential and the capacity to lead in whatever sphere or context that you're in, and I want to invite you to to lean into that idea and start to wonder, what does it look like to be an effective leader? And I think some of that starts with asking the right questions. The text that we're going to look at this morning, it talks about leadership, and when it talks about effective and strong leaders, most of what it's talking about are character qualities, qualities of one's character. And this is really interesting to me because the best leaders aren't the people with the greatest academic capability. The best leaders, the strongest leaders, aren't the ones with the greatest intellectual capacity. They're not the most talented person in the room. That, that's not what makes someone a good leader. Strong character is what makes the best leaders. The best leaders are the people with strong character. And that's a lot of what Paul's going to be talking about this morning is the characteristic qualities of what it means to be a strong leader. Uh, if you're in a small group, you're hearing from this guy named Chip Ingram. And, um, you know, we're not, I'm not going to lay a bunch of background context for the book because Chip Ingram does that, and so I'm not going to repeat that. But one thing that he says that I love is he says that you... Whoever you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are the greatest Christian that someone knows. You, whoever you are, you're the greatest Christian that someone knows. That's a, that's a big leadership role. You have to understand that when someone thinks about God, when someone's doing theology in their mind, if they know you, there's a good chance that you are the window through which they see God. You are the reflection of Jesus through whom they perceive what Jesus is all about, what his character is like. Most people outside of the church 
This might surprise you. Don't really read scripture. I mean, I have questions about how much we do that within the church sometimes, but outside of the church, most people don't sit around every day reading the Bible. The scripture that they read is your life. When they try to understand who God is, when they have ideas and assumptions and any kind of assertions about God, most of it is from them reading the scripture of your life. Most of them will read that and see who God is. You are the greatest Christian that someone knows. Maybe you're not convinced yet that you're a leader. Uh, And hopefully as we lean into this this morning, I can change your mind a little bit. But with an election tomorrow and all this going on, leadership in our nation, I want us this morning, I want to invite you guys to take our eyes off of our expectations of those who lead us and turn our eyes inwards and look at ourselves and say this morning, you know, ask ourselves, how am I leading? What expectations do I place on myself as a leader? Where am I leading people to? Before we hop into the text, why don't you pray with me? God, thank you so much for this morning. And I do want to thank you that we live in a free country where we get to exercise our democratic right. Thank you that our opinion and our voice matters. And we get to go out and we get to be a part of that. Beyond any of that, And what happens with that? I pray that our eyes would stay focused on you, our true leader, and that we would consider this morning what it looks like to be a leader for you. We love you, God. Amen. So if you've read some of Paul's letters, you will know that Paul is the king of long sentences. Uh, You'll be reading, and all of a sudden, you know, you've been reading for 30 minutes, and you're like, am I still in the same sentence? The first four verses of this uh, book is one gigantic sentence. I don't know if, like, back when he was writing this a couple thousand years ago, if, like, the cost of putting a period in the text was, like, really expensive, and he's just making cutbacks or whatever, Uh, but, you know, uh, this this is a long sentence. This sentence, just to break it down into what's going on here, has one period, shows up at the end, could have used a couple more. It has one apostrophe, it has one colon, it has one hyphen. I don't actually even know really the rules about like using those properly in a sentence, so go Paul. Um, it has seven commas, and there's not some giant list where he uses seven commas throughout, 92 words, and it spans three paragraphs. Wow, that is incredible. I actually spent some time Googling um, longest sentences in the world. Apparently someone wrote a one million word book that was one sentence. And I thought, wow, there is my number one book to never read in my entire life. Thank you so much. So anyways, uh, we're going to just kind of work through these first four verses. These first four verses, what I want to do is I just want to lay a bit of a foundation. When you think about this series that we're doing over the next six weeks, think about what Paul is laying out here for the purpose of his letter. And then we'll hop into some of the leadership stuff afterwards. He starts out, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. We'll stop there for a second, even though, as you know, no period. But we'll stop there. And so what Paul's doing is he's introducing himself. He's like, I'm a servant of God and I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people you have a little bit of a theological debate about what exactly qualifies as an apostle. We won't get into that this morning. But what he's saying is he's saying, God has given me these great revelations of who he is, of his character, understanding who God is. And I want to share them with you. And then this is what he says. He's writing this letter to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. He wants to further their faith and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, which is essentially the same mission that we have here at FBC, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. This whole letter, the whole premise is going to be, I hope people grow in their faith, 
And I hope people grow in their knowledge of the truth. This isn't to become like some Bible brainiac. But as you understand God's character more, then you are able to live God's character more. Coming to a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness means that the more that you understand God's character, the more that you can live a godly life and express his character. There is something of getting to know God here. So I would say this is the main purpose of the letter, to help people grow in their faith and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It continues in verse 2. He says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. This is the premise for this teaching. This is him saying, I, I want to help you grow in your faith and your knowledge of this truth that leads to godliness because of this great and rich and eternal promise that we have that one day after this life, we will step into something beyond what we could ever imagine that was promised to us by the God who created this universe who does not lie. This is why we should grow in our faith and our knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It says, and verse 3, at which now at his appointed season, he is brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me, Paul, by the command of God our Savior. He's saying, Jesus came and he revealed this to me, and I have this message that preaches this eternal hope, and as a result of this eternal hope, let's grow in our faith, and let's grow in the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So this is where we're headed over the next six, six weeks. If anything, I hope you understand that whatever we discuss, whatever we learn, whatever we look at, that will help you grow in your faith and in your knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And then the next paragraph, not divided by a period, says, To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. End of sentence. And so this is Paul saying, here I am, this is why I'm writing it, and he's writing it to this young pastor who's loved, he's mentored, this his, he says his son in, his, in the faith, he's, he's raised him up, and he's taught him, and now he's releasing him to be this pastor, and he's empowering him to go out and do these cool leadership things. He says, grace and peace to you as you lead people in this way. Paul takes this position here, trying to help people grow in their faith and in this knowledge of this truth. He takes this position, I, I think about him kind of like a personal trainer. That person who's just beside you, who's like, people, you're looking at me like, how do you know what a personal trainer does? And that, good question, I Googled it. But, um, you know, that person beside you who's just yelling at you and harping at you, saying, no, no, there's more. You can go forward. You can do more. And why? Because of this great goal, this great eternal hope that's at the end. You know, they're like saying, you want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger? Do this. You can do, there's more. And this is Paul saying, there's so much hope. So don't give up. Don't slow down. Keep growing. One thing I love about Paul, I mean, he's, he's a, theologically, his writing, speaking, it's all great. But one of the coolest things about Paul is, is the leadership lessons that we can learn from him. Paul is, an, I think, one of the greatest leaders in, in the history of humankind. See, Paul, he doesn't just do a bunch of stuff. He does a bunch of stuff, and it's awesome, but he raises up other people to do a bunch of stuff, too. A lot of the times, I think that we think that the best leaders are the leaders who do the most things, the leaders who accomplish the most. But I would argue this morning that the leaders, the best leaders aren't the ones who accomplish the most things, but the best leaders are the ones who empower others to accomplish the most things. I'll say it one more time. The best leaders are not the ones who they themselves accomplish the most. The best leaders are the ones who empower others to accomplish the most. The best leaders are the ones who say, who can I train? Who can I raise up and invest into and encourage and empower to accomplish great things for Jesus? 
That's why we do have small groups, and that's why we have small group leaders for our youth and for FBC kids, and we do that all through our adult years is because we don't want to just, oh, I'm great in my faith, I'm doing these great things, but we want to empower others to lead and to be raised up and to do incredible things. And I love how Paul does this. And that's a, that's a tough thing to do. I mean, if you've ever had a role or a project that you're passionate about and you know like, I mean, it, you know that you're the best in the world at that, right? Like, you've started it, you're doing it, and you're just like, no one can do this like me. And you could hand it off to someone else, but man, it's scary, because you know they're going to screw it up. They're not going to do it the way you would do it. That's tough. But it's one of the greatest leadership moves you can say is, I'm, I'm going to walk alongside with you, and I'm going to let you stumble through this. I'm even going to let you make mistakes. This is a great parenting lesson, I would say. How do you lead your kids? Do you just try to carve out their path for them and make their decisions for them to try to keep them safe? You know, like you're like the bumpers in the gutters when they're bowling and try to, you know, you should be encouraging them and platforming them, but giving them space to go to make some mistakes so that they can grow and learn to become the leaders that they need to be, not to just learn how to be your kid forever. So that's kind of a tangent. One of the reasons I'm passionate about talking about leadership this morning is because I think a lot of the times we have this misconception that church should be a place where a whole bunch of people come with a few leaders. You may think, right, I'm not a leader. I'm not one of the staff. I'm not one of the pastors. I'm not, I'm not on the board. I'm not one of the volunteer directors or whatever. I, I'm just someone who comes. And I think that if we have a view of church, that there's a whole bunch of people coming with a few leaders, that there are a whole bunch of people here in this body, this family, and a few leaders, we severely limit our ability to accomplish our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If we view ourselves as a collection, a team of leaders, a church of leaders, not a church with leaders, then we're, power, we're unstoppable in our pursuit of this mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, not just we and you guys get to watch. This is, to me, this is such important teaching in Scripture. Okay, let's move on to verse 5. Okay, I could camp out there for a long time. So this is Paul empowering Titus to lead. He says, the reason I, Paul, left you, Titus, in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, what this is specifically talking about, and I got to acknowledge this, is that he is talking about kind of their church leadership structure. I mean, this is a letter where Paul's saying, you need to appoint leaders in the church, elders and overseers, which um, we won't get into it too much. Elders comes from the Greek presbyteros, and overseers comes from episkopos. So they are kind of different words, but these are leaders who lead the church. These are real positions, and we could talk about, you know, different church governance models and what that looks like, and that's important stuff and a great conversation but what I want to look at is the, the idea that Paul's about to unpack what leaders in the church should look like, what their character should be like, how they should be living their lives, and who they should be. Because the idea of the church was never that there would be some leaders up front that are like tier one, and then other people can come in their tier two, and they're just stuck. Like, you know, you can't quite meet up to our qualification. It's not like when I became a pastor, God came down from heaven with like spiritual steroids and just like injected it into me. It was like, boom, you know, like you can live out Titus one. Hopefully the people in your church can like, you know, uh, can do something like kind of close. No, the idea is that this list that we're about to look at is something that all of us should be striving towards to be leaders because you are the greatest Christian that someone knows. And that person needs a strong and effective leader leading them towards Jesus Christ. So he's about to give us these qualifications. So he starts off in verse 6. He says, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. 
So I just want to like point out something pretty obvious here at this point. Maybe this is the first time you've read this or heard it. Maybe you've wrestled with this before. Maybe you've thought about this before. But it talks about being a man with one wife, a man whose children believe. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, can a leader in this context only be a man? Is it reserved only for, for men? And if, if that's your question, this is what I would say this morning. Great question. Way to read scripture. I'm so glad you asked. Way to read scripture and, and look at the words that are being said there. This is a question that's been asked for a long time in churches and leadership, and they've, there are people on different sides of the debate. So if you've been at FBC for a while, you know that we try to keep this stage as a place where we focus on the gospel and we major on majors rather than minoring on minor theological issues like that. So we're not going there this morning, not because like, we're scared of getting into controversial stuff, but if that's something you want to spend some time pondering, great. But for now, I'm going to push that off to the side, and we're going to look at what it looks like for us to be, to have quality characteristics in order to be a leader for Jesus Christ. A leader, an elder must be blameless. One who leads must be blameless. Well, you might say, oh, well, like I'm already done. I'm not blameless. I'm imperfect. You know, I, I agree. I mean, that'd be me. I'd close the Bible and say, well, I'm, I'm done. I'm off the hook. I, I can't do this because I'm not blameless. Paul's obviously not talking about someone who being perfect in order to be an elder in the church. I mean, if so he would be disqualifying himself immediately. We read in some of his other letters where he talks about how he struggles with his sinful nature. You become a follower of Jesus, you still struggle with that nature. I think one of the strongest ways a person can exercise blamelessness is to just be someone who is the first to embrace and accept the fact that you are struggling with sinfulness and selfishness and be the first to confess that and admit that. It's pretty hard to bring charges against someone when they've already confessed what they've done. I mean, if I were to be a strong leader, the picture would be that if someone came to Doug and was like, oh, Ryan said this and did this, and he's like this, and these are his weaknesses, that Doug would say, I know. Ryan owns that. Ryan knows his weaknesses. Ryan knows that he's struggling, and he is the first to admit that and the first to confess and apologize and lean into those weaknesses and try to grow, to ask for advice, to be vulnerable and transparent. Being blameless isn't so much about becoming more perfect it's about being humble enough to admit your faults. I mean, what a great way to lead. I mean, we're called to confess our weaknesses and our struggles and to continue to try to grow in them. You want to be, able to, you want to be an effective leader? Be the first one to do that. Say, I'm going to lead in humility by saying, hey, like, I'm struggling with some stuff. That's the picture of blamelessness I get from this, is that you know, we say, yeah, I'm struggling with sin. And this isn't a license to just sin. If you confess it, you're just good. This is, we should be growing in our godliness. Remember, we grow in a, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. As we follow Jesus, our character should become more like his. But when we stumble, we don't look around and in pride try to hide it and keep it a secret. We look around and we say, hey, listen, I'm like the rest of us. I mess up sometimes. He continues on after talking about an elder being blameless. He says, faithful to his wife. Now, this seems obvious, like, we're like, yeah, like, obviously a leader of the church, like, probably shouldn't be running around on their spouse, you know, they probably shouldn't cheat on their spouse. It seems pretty straightforward and obvious. I think this goes so far beyond that. This isn't, I mean, in their context, this would be a pretty different teaching. And also, like I said, I'm not getting into the background too much, but where Titus is pastoring is this Greek island called Crete that's known for their immorality. And you'll see that a little bit later in the text. But this teaching in our context, we're like, yeah, of course you should be faithful to your wife. It's not about just being a spouse that like, doesn't cheat or doesn't do the bad things that we say are wrong for spouses to do. But it's about reflecting and mirroring the commitment and the relationship and the undying devotion 
that Jesus Christ has to, his, to the church, to others. I just read this really great book by Peter Scazzaro called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. Uh, such a convicting read. There's an entire chapter, it's a pretty long book, an entire chapter com- um, committed to uh, talking about uh, leading out of your singleness or out of your marriage. And Peter Scazzaro argues, and I think he presents really good arguments, that how you comport yourself in that relationship, your singleness, or whether you're married or you're kind of like in transition between the two, uh, you know, how you comport yourself, how you handle yourself, how you live in that context is the loudest gospel message that you preach. Now, I believe that you have to use words to preach the gospel, but he would argue that the loudest way that you preach the gospel is how you live in the context of those relationships. I can't spend the, like all the time unpacking that, but it's a really cool argument that the way that you exist within your devotion to your husband or your wife or how you exist with your devotion to maybe your potential future spouse even when you're not with them is such a clear communication of how you understand Christ's commitment to the church. This is huge. It goes beyond just you know, not making mistakes as a spouse, but it goes, it goes to the point of saying, you know, in those relationships, I will lay down my life to show that kind of undying commitment. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. I mean, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Uh, you know, I've only got one kid who's almost two. Parents out there, at this point, you're just closing the Bible. You're like, okay, I'm done. I'm out. Uh, Avra is very open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Paul is not suggesting here that you can only be a leader if you make sure that your kids grow up to believe exactly what you want them to believe and that there is never any ability to say, oh, they act kind of wild and disobedient. I live in the reality that as much as I love Jesus, one day Avra might choose not to follow Jesus. And I don't think Paul is saying, that's what will disqualify you. I think a bigger question is, why did she choose not to follow Jesus? When Avra's older, if she chooses to not follow Jesus, I mean, like, right now, I am so aware that I cannot force her will. Like, I mean, I can force her into her car seat, which, like, I literally do with, like, kicking and screaming, um, and then she's also upset, too, but, you know, and, and for, <laughs> force her in. But, man, I, I realize she has a will of her own, you know, like, I mean, actually, I think God's blessed her with, like, 10 wills of her own, like, she just, there's no way one day I'm going to be able to say, Avery, you believe this, and she'll just be like, yes, sir, I mean, I hope, but I don't think it's going to happen, but one day, if she chooses to not believe Jesus, I hope that people who know me best will be able to look at her and say, well, she had every opportunity to believe. Her parents reflected the love and grace of Jesus Christ. They taught her about God's incredible character day in and day out. Yeah, they struggled, but they showed that well. I think that that is kind of what Paul's getting at here. Or on the flip side, what if you could say, yeah, Everett doesn't follow Jesus, and it's no surprise. Have you looked at the way her parents are overbearing or harsh or they don't care. They're not intentional in the ways that they reflect Jesus' love to her. I think that that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. How do you parent? Do you parent in a way where your kids can clearly grow up knowing that your priority is for them to experience this eternal hope that Paul talks about in verse 2? I don't know. That's what it looks like to be a leader for Jesus. Continues on in verse 7, it says, Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. So again, this idea of being blameless. What does it mean to manage God's household? I think it's easy to read that and just be like, oh, that's the pastors, or that's the church staff, or whatever. This household, this kingdom of God, this invisible kingdom that we're all part of, 
is something that is being co-managed by all of us. You're not off the hook. You show up here. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You are managing this household with all of us. I don't care if you're a custodian in that household. I don't care if you're a part-time laborer. I don't care if you're a shift worker in the kingdom of God, if you're a pastor, if you're a whatever you are, whatever you show up to do, you are a reflection of God's household and you manage it. People look through the window of your life to see God's character. You are preaching a loud gospel message through the way that you live your life. So we should be blameless. We should be continuing to grow in righteousness and when we stumble, be the first ones to admit our faults. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Paul often uses these lists in his letters and they're usually not exhaustive lists. Like it's not like, here's a checklist. If you've done these, you're good despite your other sin issues in life. This starts to paint a picture of what he's talking about. And when I read this list right here, what I start to understand is that these are leaders like this description would be a leader who just lives for themselves, who is a selfish leader. You want to be drunk? Well, that's because you desire to follow the cravings of the flesh rather than following the leading of the spirit in order to lead others. You want to indulge in your desires and your fleshly passions rather than submitting and surrendering your life to God? Then you're not going to be a leader for Jesus. But if you're willing to lay down your life for those you lead, then you will. Why are people violent? Why are people given to dishonest gain? Why are people, uh, you know, why are people quick-tempered and overbearing? It's because we become that way. We become violent and we become quick-tempered because we focus on what we want rather than on the needs of others. When we focus on what we want, it's easy to become violent and angry and hot-tempered because people offend us. People don't do the things we want. We're looking for what we get out of it. I mean, this happens in relationships all the time. This happens in parenting relationships and marriages and work relationships where we're focused on what we want so much that when people cross it, we become quick-tempered rather than saying, what does that person need? So why, like when you hear about a, a captain of a ship, what's the story you hear? You know, the ship's going down. Do they go grab their personal sea dew and hop on it and say, see you guys later, good luck, you know? No, the captain goes down with the ship. They're, they're the one standing there, even though they're the highest paid person on the boat, even though they have every right, they might, have, they might be the most talented person on the boat. They might need, be the person that's needed in the water. They're standing by the edge of the boat, getting people off. They're running around the boat, finding people whose lives they can save that they can put first. As Paul says in Philippians, to value others above yourself and to look to their interests, not your own. And this is the exact example we see in the life of Jesus Christ, who comes and takes up his, Christ, his cross to lay down his life for us. If selfishness is your goal, then leadership in the kingdom of God will never be your destination. If focusing on yourself is your goal, you will never lead people towards Jesus Christ. We need to be a people who lead by laying down our lives to focus on the interests of others and valuing others above ourselves. That's kind of what he talks about in verse 8. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Are you growing in your knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness? Is Christ's character coming through your life? If people sat down with one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and just took an account of the ways that Jesus acted and treated others and spoke and made kind of an assessment of his character, and then they did the same to you, would those be parallel pictures or would those be so contrasted? If people who know you well made those lists, would they say, this, this doesn't line up with this at all? When people say, well, I can read that Jesus sits down with the Samaritan woman at the well that no one else wants to talk to and gives his time to her, even though it's a burden and he doesn't want to do that. But this person, 
when someone at work says something that offends them, they just fly off the handle. They're hateful. They talk trash about people. Do we see that Jesus is willing to lay down his life by going to the cross, but then people who know you say, well, at school or at work or in their family, they, they always just look to their own interests. They aren't willing to go and talk to the people who, who others don't want to talk to. They aren't willing to give selflessly like that. How does the character of your life parallel the character of Christ's life? We should be people who are hospitable, people who love what is good, who are self-controlled, who holiness and discipline come through our lives so that the gospel message of our lives speaks so loudly to Jesus' character. If you were to lose your voice tomorrow, if you were never able to speak again and you kept living your life the way you did and you commit the same actions you do and you do the same things, if people were following you in those actions, if people were following your example, where would they end up? Would they end up closer to Jesus or further away from Jesus? You are leading someone, something, somewhere. Where are you leading them? Verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. All of this has been character qualities. Now we get into a little bit of the intellectual stuff. Understand sound doctrine. That means understanding a proper picture of God's character, exercising good theology, studying scripture. I think this is where a lot of us kind of go off the path because we're like, yeah, I can be a good person. I can be nice. I can do all that. But having to like sit down and read my Bible and like, learn stuff and like pay attention at small group and like you know it's, it's just a lot of work you know um Talcy and i love craft dinner okay so uh, if any craft dinner lovers in the church this has something to do with what we're talking about we're also cheap uh like i like to use the word frugal but when it comes down to it we're pretty cheap people we we, we pinch pennies you know so anyways a little while ago i was at superstore and we buy no-name brand stuff all the time and so I was going to buy some craft dinner. Now, I'm going to make a little bit of a distinction here because the, the Superstore no-name white cheddar craft dinner stuff, you guys know what I'm talking about? That's actually, like, unreal, amazing. But I bought the normal uh, President's Choice no-name craft dinner, and I took it home. I was like, sweet, I saved, like, 50 cents per box. This is awesome. I went to make a box, and, like, I kid you not, it was awful. So the cheese in those, it's just a warning. If you're going to, like, save the 50 cents, just don't. Save it somewhere else. You, I was started mixing it, and the cheese just, like, chunked up and would not spread around the craft dinner. I spent, like, the next hour of my life trying to add enough liquids and, like, heat it up and, like, keep stirring this thing and trying to crush it. Like, I'm not exaggerating. It, it felt... Like I was like churning butter back in the day before they had electricity, like in the 70s or whenever that was. And it was brutal. Never again. I think this is so often how we approach theology. You get this basic understanding where, where a no-name brand of theology or doctrine would be good enough for us. Yeah, I learned some Sunday school lessons. I don't need to study scripture anymore. I don't need to. God has made you as an emotional human being to express character and an intellectual human being to understand God's character. It's hard to express God's character if you're not learning much about it. You express God's character by knowing more about his character. These are two vital things that work in tandem. This is a synergistic relationship where you know more about God's character and then you can express it. You're not a good person because you just can come up with enough good things to do on your own. You're a good person because you you grow in your knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and God's character expresses itself through your actions. 
This is why we did the fake news series in August. You know, statements like everything happens for a reason, God helps those who help themselves, or God doesn't give you more than you can handle, those sound good. Maybe in the moment that feels good to say something like that, and you're just like, oh, I said something. Paul says, use sound doctrine to encourage people. You don't encourage people by coming up with this counterfeit, cheap version of God's character. You can truly encourage people when you help them experience real truth about the creator who loves them and created them in his image. This is how people can be encouraged. You can't conjure up enough words to rightly encourage someone in a deeply meaningful way. But you can understand God's character enough to really encourage people. He goes on to say, use it to refute lies. I mean, lies are all around us. Fake news series. There's so much in our minds and our lives in the world that wants to creep in and deteriorate our understanding of God. Spend some time studying scripture. In fact, in a series like this, I, I'm glad you guys come on a Sunday morning and listen to, listen to us holler at you for a little bit, but I would way rather you go home and you spend a bunch of time studying this text so that you can grow in your knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and God's character can express itself through you as you learn more about it and you grow in your awe and understanding of who Jesus truly is. Like I said, I believe that every person in this room is a born leader. You're leading something, you're leading someone, you're leading somewhere. You are. And you can either try to run from that or do a mediocre job of that, or else you can lean into that and say, how do I do this effectively? How do I embrace that? How do I do that in a way that truly honors Jesus? Like I said, we have this mission of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And when I say we, I don't mean like a few of us on stage and you guys can come watch it all go down. I mean, we as a team, as you are leading well, as you are leading effectively for Jesus, we all benefit. Our team moves forward together. When you take a step back and you say, I don't want to lead, I'm not going to do this, you don't lean into that, we all suffer. We all lead together. We're as good as we work together. So this week, what I want to do is I want to challenge you with this. I want to challenge you to say the question isn't, am I leading others? It's how am I leading others? And I'd ask you to wrestle with this for the week. How am I leading others? Maybe even talk about this in your small group. Challenge each other. You are leading others. You're the greatest Christian someone knows. You're leading them. The question is, how? Are you doing that with character? And I encourage you to spend some time in verses 6 through 9 this week saying, God, convict and challenge me with this list and beyond. Like I said, this isn't a comprehensive list. Say, God, where are the areas where I can grow in the ways that I'm leading others? If we embrace this idea that we're not a church with leaders, but we're a church of leaders, we're a church where everyone is called to be a leader and that we're leading someone, we'll be unstoppable in our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If we just show up and spectate chill out, not grow in the ways that we lead, not grow in our faith and our knowledge that leads to godliness, then we'll be the greatest enemies of our own mission. And this is the most important mission we could ever have. Why don't you guys stand up? We're going to pray. We're going to sing a song. And then you can go and lead your families in what it looks like to devour donuts after church on a Sunday. Why don't you guys pray with me? God, thank you so much that Paul wrote this letter, and thank you that a long time later, we still have this letter to learn from. 
I pray that as we read the words of scripture, it wouldn't be a waste, but that we would be convicted and challenged to be leaders for you, God. Help FBC be a place that is so passionate about leading others in our mission, God. Help every single one of us have the conviction and passion and desire to step out and to lead those who are looking at us, God. Help us be such a clear representation of your character, of the gospel, of who you are, so that those who are looking at us and those who are following us will arrive in relationship with you, God. We love you so much. Amen.